Good morning, Disciples Church. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, chapter 55. Today we continue our short study on Isaiah chapter 55 in a series that we're calling Feast. Today we're going to study verses 6 through 9 in a sermon that I've titled, Repent and Believe. Look with me. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than than your ways, and my thoughts, than your thoughts. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The command of God on all of creation is to seek God, to believe in him, to trust in him, to Honor him. Why? Because it is right. To believe in God, to trust in God, there is nothing more right than to give God what God is due. Respect and honor and faith and obedience. Believing into God or trusting your entire life to God is the highest purpose of one's life. The Holy Scriptures say that this is such a priority for the moment-by-moment life of mankind that anything we do or say outside of faith in God is sin. Romans 14, 23. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Don't miss the overwhelming nature of this verse. If faith in God is not whatever thought or deed you might do's origin, if the origin of that thought or deed is not faith in God, it is sin. The reason this is so penetrating is that it goes to the root of our sinful actions and attitudes, namely, a failure to trust in God. The original language gives emphasis to this more than the English versions of this text, Romans 14, 23, everything which is not from faith is sin. Everything, anything, any act or attitude which is not from true faith unto the glory of God is sin, no matter how good or right or moral it might be perceived by man. God looks beyond the action to the heart, 
to the motivation or the aim of the action or thought, is it full of faith in God or not? The all-pervasive fault in every sin, in its core, is unbelief. By unbelief, I do not mean merely refusing to accept the truths of the Bible. We are not saved by giving mental assent to the promises of God. We are saved by whether we hope with our hearts and put our lives in the promises of God. The failure of the heart to be confident in the promises of God, to rejoice and find pleasure in His sovereign provision, is the root or essence of sin. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. So Isaiah's press here to seek God is about faith. It's about walking in faith. To trust Him. To do nothing outside of Him. He's saying, seek him, trust him with your entire life. He's saying, be about God before it's too late, while he can still be trusted in. To call upon his name, to look to him, and nothing else for your hope, for your joy, for your purpose, and for your identity. Understand that God will not share his glory with anyone or anything else. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, he says. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So this is not just a seek God like you might seek a treasure chest. Don't just seek him like he's something great you can add to your life. No. It is seek him with all that you are. Put your life into him. Trust into him. And this is one of modern Christianity's gross errors. Gross errors. Many have made belief in Jesus something stripped down to just simply believing that Jesus is God. I can't tell you how many well-intending family members I've heard say over the years that they think their loved one is in heaven, not because they witnessed true surrender or submission to Jesus as Lord, but only because they simply claim to believe that Jesus is God. Jesus himself is clear time and time again that true faith in him is not passive. It's not something you just add, but it is a total life rebirth, a joyful submission to take up your cross and follow him in all we do. We might be terrible at it, the birth of a, of a person in saving faith, see it as the birth of an infant. Someone who's pretty much utterly worthless to do anything on their own. 
and, and the seasons of maturity and growth and sanctification is real. So don't be downtrodden if, if you're struggling. We might spend a lifetime fighting sin and working out our salvation. But we still fight. A true believer still fights. We still seek God in all we do. We don't hang our religious hat on a prayer we said in 1994 or experience we had. Or No, no. There is a, a transformation that's happened. There's a new beginning that has happened by which before it happened, I was dead in sin, all about myself, fully and completely. And after, I am fully and completely His struggling in my immaturity, in my, in my infancy to do that well, but still there's a conviction, there's a, a, a longing for him, a seeking him that is never put away. It's not a season of just back then. It, it's an active thing that is always a part of who we are. John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John does not simply say whoever believes him. Whoever believes in him. The Greek word thus is into. Better translated, believes into him. It's the same sense of trust or confidence. Resting in him. Not just believing about. There's a huge difference between believe Jesus and believing Jesus. Believing into him. The demons, clearly, Scripture says, believed that Jesus was God. Same, James 2.19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Basically, what looks like a compliment, and it's really a rebuke. You saying you believe that Jesus is God, the demons believe that, and they're damned for eternity. Belief about Jesus is not enough. This is why believing into Jesus is so critical. It's more than knowledge It's trusting, it's putting your life in him. It's dying to self to live to Christ. You've spent any time with me as a preacher, you've heard me share a story about a a French tightrope walker by the name of of Blondin. Um, True story, this guy was crazy and really good at what he did. Very famously, historically, stretched a, a line, a cable across Niagara Falls and Crowds would gather and be in awe of what he would do on that cable, blindfolded, backwards. Said to have like cooked breakfast out there at one point or something. <laughs> Roll the wheelbarrow full of bricks. And just people just in amazement. And whether this part of the story is true or not, it still preaches, so I continue to say it. And one day he said, after seeing him wheel hundreds of pounds of bricks flawlessly across this line. How many of you believe a man could get in this wheelbarrow and I could push him across the line? Yeah, oh, absolutely. We've seen you do 
carry things way heavier than a, than a man. So who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? No one. No one. No one wants to get in. But that's the difference. How many of you believe Jesus? Believe what He said. Believe He's God. It means nothing unless you're willing to get in, die to yourself, and give Him your life. And and you are then now what He says you are. You're not the Lord of your own life anymore. He is. And it's your joy to be his. The, the apostles say again and again, the number one phrase they use for themselves is, is that it is a joy to be a slave of Christ, an, an utter servant. We, we water that down by using the English word servant. But most of those words in the New Testament is the word doulos, which is the word slave. They get the utter surrender that it is to just be dead to self and alive to Christ. I'm yours. I'm yours. It's my joy to be yours. A true believer is one who lives their entire life trusting and believing into Jesus. We are required to do nothing to be saved. We can, we can earn nothing. We can merit nothing. Even belief in God, the scriptures say, is a gift from God. But if that if that belief, if that proclaimed trust in him is not backed by a life that seeks to submit to God, that seeks God, that, that although you might be terrible at fighting sin, you still crawl back into the word. You want him to command you. You want him to be the Lord of your life. You don't reject it. You seek him. Faith, belief, walking by faith, that's what this is. True, true saving faith is shown by a life of repentance. Continued trust into Jesus. God does the saving. We add nothing to his work to save. But if saved, we seek him and we trust him as Savior and Lord. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found Call upon him while he is near. You don't have to pay anything to get into the feast. But you have to believe. You have to have real faith in him. While he may be found, call upon him while he's near. Do you you hear the urgency of that? The fact is there will be a time when it will be too late either because your time is up and you die or because Jesus comes again to take the believing into the new creation and condemned the guilty unto eternal torment. Jesus highlights the urgent call to belief and repentance right out of the gate as he starts his public ministry in Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. And what did Jesus say? What was his sermon? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Urgency. It's, I'm here. The gospel is here. Repent. Believe into me, Jesus says. The disciples, after the ascension of Christ, and the disciples in birthing the church by the sovereign hand of God, kept this priority in their preaching. 
that people must believe into Jesus to be saved. Acts 16, 30-31, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. We see in Scripture that God requires saving faith in Jesus Christ alone of all people. That's a requirement of all people to be saved. For those who don't believe, it their lack of belief will be one of the many sins they are accountable for. Acts 17.30 God commands all people everywhere to repent. It is God's holy command that all people repent and believe. That's the command upon sinners to believe in Him alone. But despite the popular belief that Jesus desires, that God desires all to be saved, the scriptures are clear that it is not His holy will that all be saved. And you say, well, that feels like a crazy contradiction. He commands all to repent and believe, but in his sovereign providence, not all will believe. So, but, but, but that's the shell game that we, mankind, like to start to play with God. We, we like to break down his construct and say, I feel like I see flaws with that. There might be a little bit of a lack of fairness in that. I don't know. He is right and just to command sinners who are against his holy glory to repent and believe. That is a righteous command, and part of their judgment, those who don't believe, is their lack of belief in Him, their lack of faith, their lack of seeking Him. See, that's a part of the judgment of those who do not come to know Christ. And also sees clearly the Scriptures say that in God's providence, in His perfect holiness, it is His will that not all be saved. And if you really struggle with some of the nuances of that, I encourage you to let your faith and trust in God be exercised in that very point. As to not set this aside and go, I think I have a better logic for how this really works over here. I'll grab one verse out of context or three verses out of context in the scriptures and make them say something that the whole of Bible, the Bible does not say. If you studied with us here at Disciples Church for any amount of time, or you are a solid student of the Holy Scriptures and historic Orthodox theology, you will know that prior to the Holy Spirit's regenerating our spiritually dead and depraved heart, we cannot and will not believe in Him. We're desperate to be revived. We're dead. You don't, you don't seek God in a dead state. It's a modern concept that, that the church fell into in the last 20 years where we even came up with this idea of seeker-sensitive churches. There, there is no seekers. You're dead in sin or awoken in Christ to see and savor the gospel by which you will seek God, not only just in your profession of faith, but all of your life. Romans 3, 10-11, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands. No one seeks for God. In our depraved, morally corrupt state, we do not seek for God. 
if you have a, a friend or a neighbor that you feel like you're starting to see evidence of them seeking God, that could be evidence of the work of God in their lives to awaken a dead heart and bring the gospel into view. Pray that that's the case. Show them the gospel. Walk with them. Rejoice. It may be evidence of that. Or it may be evidence that in their depraved nature, they're looking to find God to accomplish something else that they ultimately desire. To, to fix a marriage or to make them more wealthy or to get, make their sick kid healthy. God will not be the means to some other end. So sometimes what we see in seeking is not authentic awakening of a dead heart. It's, it's, man, it's sin. It's, it's a seeking God to be a genie in a lamp. Thinking at a distance. So if I just kind of jump through these religious hoops and kind of hang out with you and your crowd, then maybe I'll have that. And what they really don't want in the end is they don't want God. They want what they think God will give them. Scripture goes so far to tell us that it is God's holy plan not to save some. Scripture testifies that many don't believe so that God's plan would be fulfilled. A couple of quick reminders of this. In John 12, long ago, we preached through this text, John 12, 36-40. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And what did Isaiah say? Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, John says, they could not believe, for Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Quoting Isaiah 53.1, Isaiah 6, it's helpful to know that God had told Isaiah that his ministry to Israel would be saving for some and hardening for others. The time had run out for Isaiah's people, and the word of God was by God's will no longer to be effective to save some. Instead, he would render their hearts insensitive and their ears dull. John's words of calling back the words of Isaiah about the Messiah and unbelief of many is his way of highlighting God's sovereign work and whom he intends to save and whom he doesn't by which he has the absolute right to choose of his creation. As it clearly says in Romans 9, 22 and 23, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, his wrath, one of God's holy attributes is his wrath. His wrath is not a response to sin. His wrath is an eternal attribute of who he is. It is equally important and worthy to be praised as his love. We struggle with that because when you and I think of wrath, we think of it through human terms and we think of really bad things and people acting in really bad ways. The holy attribute of God in wrath is wonderfully perfect and worthy to be praised. What if God desiring to show his wrath to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, 
which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The doctrine of divine election is one that man dislikes and struggles with, or even rejects. Why? Because we don't like to be out of control. Mankind doesn't like the idea that God would ultimately decide. And so we lessen him and we increase ourselves to come up with a whole concept of theology and how God works in these things that is not in line with what he reveals in his scriptures. In our rebuke or rebuttal of these things, we end up holding God hostage to our desired will and say we have a better way by which he should open the gates of salvation. The fact that God chooses whom he wills is a beautiful reality by which he should be praised. Because it is his call, his power to be willed not ours. It is God's divine ability and authority to choose and not to choose. To create or not create. To save or con- to condemn. These are aspects of his godness by which we should not be quick to judge him in sin but praise him in awe. We do not know whom God will save, but he does. So we faithfully testify the gospel of Jesus to everyone. Go and make disciples of all nations is the command on us. We call all people to repent and believe and trust that God will save those he intends to. Even the most wicked, even the most abusive, the most the most evil people you know, the people who have hurt you the worst, continue to pray that they would repent and believe. For until they're dead, their hour may still come by God's sovereign plan. We pray it is God's will to save those we love, and we should. But we do not hold God captive to our will, but we joyfully surrender ourselves to him and our most loved ones to his perfect and holy will. I pray that if you are here today and you have not yet to truly trust in Jesus with your life, that you would. That you would believe into him. That you would seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Amen? That's verse 1. Let's go on to the second one. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. A few things here. Number one, turn from. Let the wicked forsake his way. His way is wicked. To forsake it is repentance. Luther said it well in the opening of his 95 Theses that he nailed on All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany to begin the Protestant Reformation by which we've all greatly benefited by in the correction of much misled theology in the Roman Catholic Church. And his first of these 95 Theses, points of contradiction or argument or conversation was this. He said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Luther's clarifying that all of the Christian life is repentance. 
You have to see first that your sin is wicked. To see it and acknowledge it is confession. Before we look further at forsaking our unrighteous ways, turning from them, we have to do confession. So let's look at understanding confession rightly. The, word, the root word of confession means to agree together with. Confession is admittance. It is admittance that agrees with God that something is what it is. You are agreeing with him. When you confess, you're saying, I'm not lying to myself about this anymore. I'm admitting it is what it is. Confession is simply acknowledging I have sinned. It is agreeing with God or the judge that you're standing before that you did it. You are guilty of breaking the law. You are not trying to paint a story on it or make it something it's not. It is standing before God or another person and declaring, this was sin. You call it sin, I'm calling it sin. I'm saying it out loud, I sinned. Because our sin is so deceiving and our flesh wants to live in the dark and live in the lies, it is super important that blood-bought Christians want to expose our sin to the light. To be honest about what happened or what is happening and to bring it into the light by declaring that it really is sin. Seeing our sin for what it is is the very first thing that God blesses us with in our salvation. As he gives us eyes to see and ears to hear, we finally have a right view of our depravity of our sin, thereby showing us our absolute desperate need for a Savior. I no longer think that I can do it on my own. There's no part of me that can save myself. Therefore, I say yes to Jesus every time. This is why when we sit with our young ones who think that they're ready for baptism, one of the great questions we're asking them is, do you understand your sin? Because many of our kids we've raised to to know God's love, and they'll proclaim, I love God too. But a proclaimed love for God, as we've already said enough, is not necessarily saving faith. Do they see clearly their sin and their need for a Savior, a desperate need for Christ alone. And is he their Lord and Savior? If so, then let's profess that in baptism. If not, then let's continue to study and understand these things so that you don't come to me five years later and say, Pastor, now I get it. Can I be baptized? You let me get baptized. I didn't get it back then. I get it now. I really want to be baptized. We already dunked you. This practice of having a right and honest view of our sin is a critical practice because anytime we're tempted or guilty of hiding our sin or making excuses for sin, we're not honoring God with our life. 
We're not walking in God, honoring righteousness. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's 1 John 1.8. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we must first see rightly our sin before we can forsake it and turn from it. Let the wicked forsake their way, and the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord. Right here we have a beautiful understanding of what repentance is. Confession is admitting sin. Repentance is turning from it unto the Lord. Forsake your evil ways. Forsake your wicked ways. Let me just ask you personally without out loud response. Do you see your propensity to do evil? To do what dishonors God? You see that our sin is not just what we do, but it's our thoughts as well, our intentions. Here we see, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, word and deed. Thoughts and deed. Heart and deed is the way we say it in the catechism. Question 33 in the Word of Truth Catechism, what is sin? Sin is disobeying God. Sin is any disobedience in heart or deed to God's perfect law and commands. So it's not just actions that must be repented of, but thoughts, but heart, but motivations, longings, idols of the heart, anything that doesn't honor God or obey His commands. Confession without without repentance, without turning, to say that sin, but then to do nothing about it, is worthless. Must turn from our unrighteousness to honor God. Repentance is taking up a new path in light of the gospel. The greatest way to make a parent angry is for a child to admit that they did wrong and then run back in the next room and do it again. See a parent come undone. Repentance is taking up a new path, not doing it again, turning from it, a new path, a new thought, a new decision that honors God, that respects his law. Christ in us means we walk by faith and in righteousness. It means we honor God with our lives. Confession is something we say. Repentance is something we do. You need to be careful that we're not repentant only because we're sorry for the consequences of the sin. This is critical. If you only repent, confess that you did something wrong or or try to take up a new course because you got caught, then God is not your aim. The avoidance of consequences in the horizontal is your aim. True repentance will not happen in this. Without real remorse, that we offended God and not just that we got caught. Without that, you'll do it again when you think you can do it without getting caught. Do you see the difference? Are you struggling, continuing to do a sin 
Maybe it's because you're lacking a true remorse that it really breaks God's heart and dishonors him. And what you're really motivated by is whether or not you can get caught or not. Because there is a true motivation that says, even though I might not get caught, God is with me. And so very present. And the thing that disgusts me the most is that this would dishonor him. Not just that I wouldn't get in trouble in a horizontal way. We need to turn from our sin and our wickedness and turn to the Lord. You must return to the Lord is what it says in the end of the verse. If we don't take up a new path that honors God, we, all, we're doing, all we're doing is tossing the car in park, waiting for a little while, and then putting it back in drive and going again. John the Baptist says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, repent in light of the gospel. It is a new practice with the king and for the king. A new life, even while still on earth. Repentance is how you remember who you are in Christ. You're turning from temptation. You're turning from sin to walk a path that is in Christ and is for Christ. If you're a child of the living God, you were once enslaved, but no longer. You've been set free by the grace of God. So it's not just admitting you did wrong. Confession alone will not do. It is turning unto God, unto Christ. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. When we return to the Lord, when we believe God in his truth, when we trust truly and fully Jesus Christ, we will be recipients of great compassion and abundant pardon. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are fully and abundantly pardoned. You might confess before a court of law a sin, a guilty action. You might even change your lifestyle. Apart from Jesus, you still stand guilty before God and condemned for eternity. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.13, he, he, Jesus, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. He, God, God the Father, delivered us from the dominion of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have, possessors of redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then in chapter 2, Colossians 2, 13 and 14, you who were dead in your trespasses, your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, all our sins. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God 
has compassion on his people as we believe in Christ alone for, for salvation, a wicked people, enemies of God, depraved in every way, guilty on our own merit, thank God for the blood of Jesus to pay our debt so that we could be abundantly pardoned unto reconciliation with God. Amen? Let me say that again. Thank God for the blood of Jesus to pay our debt so that we could be abundantly pardoned unto reconciliation with God. Amen? <laughs> See the weight of your pardon, abundantly pardoned. This is the means by which we will feast forever. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. May we see and savor the reality of the gospel that is our only salvation to bridge the gap between God and our sin. Jennifer and I are doing a study right now with a few couples that we're discipling. And, and we're, we're studying this picture, this gospel grid. And, and it shows on the left here an important understanding of the holiness of God and that we would have a growing awareness of the holiness of God and a growing awareness of our sin. And when we diminish the holiness of God or we diminish the guilt of our sin, we diminish the need for the cross. We shrink the cross. And the greater view and understanding I have of the holiness, the vastness of God, and the greater view I have of the utter depravity of my sin, the greater beauty the cross and the gospel is by which I will utterly praise his holy name. The temptation in our flesh is to diminish the holiness of God or diminish our view of the wickedness of our sin before that holy God, thereby diminishing the cross or the need for the cross. And so to help us, we spent some time talking about our sin and our need for a Savior. And I want to close today by looking at the holiness, the vastness, or what I've titled the set-apartness of God. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is one of the most famous passages of God's word speaking about the set-apartness of God. It's all throughout Scripture, but we love this verse. It is critical that we see God rightly and righteously set apart, not common in any way with us. He is holy. Holy means set apart. He's so much higher than we are. Romans 11.36 From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He is the source, the power, the reason for all things. Everything under him and for him. Church, you must see this morning the set-apartness of God to see that while we are made in his image, that doesn't make us like him or close to him. He is God and we are not. He is totally and utterly set apart. He is God and we are not. 
He is infinite and we are infinite and we are finite. He is all-knowing and we are not. He is all-powerful and we are not. He depends on nothing and we are utterly dependent creatures of his creation. See this morning the set-apartness and holiness of God that we will not diminish him in any way. Verse 8 and 9 in Isaiah 55 is an absolute gift to us. Meditate on it. Write it on your walls. Do not lose sight of it in any moment of your day or week or life. Because we are guilty all too often of thinking that we are equal or far too close to equal with him. You're saying, no, 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 no way I think that. Okay, let me show you. Ready? Romans 11, 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? No one can counsel God and give him insight he doesn't already have. No one knows better than he does. Do you agree? couple people share that with a lot of your brothers and sisters please amen but let me ask you this to consider this what is the one thing that you maybe tend to offer god more than anything else more than worship more than obedience more than respect more than trust more than honor We love to give him counsel. Don't we? Oh God, surely, surely th- this would be better. Surely your will is not, not this. I, Lord, I, I think this would be really good. Let it be like this. I see how it's all going to work out. If you just do this, God, why would you? Why would you? This is like my three-year-old, Piper, sitting in the car in the back seat, telling me that she knows better how to drive the car. (laughs) Or where to go. And that is an utterly flawed illustration in that the gap between me and Piper is tiny compared to the gap between God's insight and wisdom and ours. Amen? See that, see that, see that. Nobody gets to counsel God. Nobody gets to give God advice. Nobody gets to straighten God's path. Nobody. One of the greatest tragedies of our sin is that we... It it makes us arrogant to think that we know better than God, that our version of love is better than his, that our plan for our lives that he created is better than his, that we'll do just fine doing it our way. Who are we in light of who he is so much lower? 
He is so much higher. He is so set apart and worthy and perfect and wise and powerful. And he loves us to say, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. I mean, the, the fact that he invites us near to his throne, come here, come close. Know me and tell me what's on your heart and mind. Ask me anything. But to somehow leave, walk away from that throne and think that my way or my thought or my idea is better than his in any way. It's utter, utter foolishness. And so we pray, we, we yield, but, but we've got to yield. We've got to say what Jesus modeled for us, your way, not mine. Let your will be done, not mine. Love me enough to not do my will the way I want it. Thank you for hearing me, but I yield to you. I, in the end, want your will. Ready me for your will. I pray we'd have a better view of who God is. And who we are in Christ to him. That we keep the gospel the center of everything we do. That we continue to walk in faith and not by sight. Trusting him. That is walking by faith. Trusting him. Practicing repentance every day. Seeing our sin. Confessing it. Turning from it. Inviting others in to hold us accountable that we not return to the slop, but to honor God. Jesus says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, set apart be your name. And before I get to any of the rest of this prayer, let us be reminded of who you are and how worthy you are and how trusted you, how trusting in you we should be. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. First Chronicles 29.11 The Apostle Paul says, Indeed, I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord. How does Paul glorify God above all else in his life? By treasuring Christ above all else so that everything else in his life is nothing in comparison to him. Not that it is nothing, literally, but in comparison to God, comparison to who he is in Christ, it is nothing. That's how set apart the treasure that it is to be in Christ is in his heart. Everything, count everything as loss. Money, loss. Food, loss. Beauty, loss. Friends, loss. Family, loss. Job, loss. Success, loss. Graduation, loss. In comparison with the treasure that is Christ. So therefore, we steward our money in such a way to show that Christ is my treasure, not money. We steward our food in such a way that we show Jesus is our treasure, not the food. 
We steward friends and family in such a way that we show that Jesus is our treasure, not friends and family, and on and on and on. And if that's not you today, if you're honestly going, I'm just not there, then just pray and pray all night, all day, feast in the living word of God, delve into it that God might show you, reveal to you, give you a heart that you would see this truth, that you would see your sin, confess it, and turn and trust in Jesus for all of your life unto eternal feast with him. The old hymn says it, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I pray you feast with us forever with God because you have repented and believed and treasure God above all else. Stand with me and let's pray. As I go into this prayer, I want to read you the opening verses of Isaiah 55. Come, all who are thirsty, Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on that which is not bread, and your labor on that which does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the riches of fare. Give ear and come to me, hear me that your soul may live. Father, thank you. Father, lead us to the cross. Your love and grace poured out. Show us the beauty and the majesty of Christ. Reveal to us the depth and the depravity and the wickedness of our sin. Reveal to us our plague of excuse making. Our addiction to ourselves and our selfishness and our laziness. That we could confess these things and turn to you. To a path that honors you. To a path that walks in Christ in all things. Help us to never be done with this practice until you take us into glory. And as we sang earlier, our faith turns into sight. What a joy it will be. Hear us now as we profess the name of Jesus high. Prepare us to profess it boldly to the watching world around us as we leave this place. And for anyone who has joined us today, sitting to this moment and to this day on their religion or their self-salvation, that they would repent and believe in you alone for salvation, for your glory and their eternal good. In Jesus' name, amen.